0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Nicholas Frickman, author of the book The Bloody Flag, Mutiny in the Age of the Atlantic Revolutions. Nicholas, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Um, thank you, Mark. Um, I'm very, very happy to be here and, and have this opportunity to talk about uh, my new book. And we're very happy to have you on the podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Um, of course. Um, so I'm uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, um, which is also where I got my PhD and where I wrote the, the original uh, dissertation that, then, now a long time later, became this book. Um, my uh, my background, as anyone will hear, I'm not a native English speaker. Um, it's I have, a, I have a funny muddled accent. I, I was born in Sweden, but grew up in uh, in Germany, and then went to undergraduate in the UK, and then graduate school in the US. So um, I think I have a muddled set of accents all piled <laughs> on top of each other.
0: <laughs> I, I think of it was more cosmopolitan, and it's it's a fascinating background because I I, I I can you know hearing it makes me think about what your book uh, you know embodies, which is this, it's not a history of any one nation or any one Navy, but it's a very cosmopolitan history. What was it that led you to write a book about uh, mutinies during the Atlantic Revolutionary – during the Revolutionary Period, and,
1: and and why did you adopt the focus that you did? Um it's, it's something I've obviously thought about a lot that I think all of us do when we choose and get fascinated by a particular topic. In my case, in some ways, it's especially weird because where I grew up in Germany is almost as landlocked as you can be anywhere in Western Europe. It was literally the last village before the Swiss border. Um, and yet there was always something about uh, the sea and, and, and ships and especially the age of sail that I just found basically just romantic and, and, and fascinating and, um, but when I first went to graduate school, um, having grown up in Germany, I, I, I wanted to do something actually on the Nazi period, um, a kind of labor history of Nazi Germany, um, since that just seemed to me um, something that still just has to be understood. There are too many open questions still. Um, but as I started reading around and tried to educate myself in labor history and the historiography, um, I happened to bump into the, my future advisor's first book, Marx um uh, between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, and I was just blown away. I didn't realize you could be a historian of pirates, and <laughs> <laughs> that's whole world. And I was like, "What you can do that?" Um, so, so at that point, I just basically just threw out all the Nazi stuff, and I just decided I was going to study eighteenth-century uh, sailors. And uh, and then yeah, and then, then a few years, I, I did my MA in the UK, um, and I did it part time. So a lot of times, just read around and 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 educate myself, and I stumbled into the uh, British Marxist historical tradition, um, E.P. Thompson, of course, Christopher Hill, this whole world opened up to me, and, uh, and, and then eventually applied for grad school in, in the U.S. to study with Marx Redeker in Pittsburgh. And uh, as then came time to decide on a, on, on a topic, I, it was clear to me that I wanted to do something uh, on sailors in the late 18th century. But the kind of question that had bugged me that initially had driven me to this question on Nazi Germany kind of was still there. Like I still wanted to understand the sort of the the, the force of nationalism um, and how it interacts with class. Um, since there was this well-established literature on, uh, on the cosmopolitanism of 18th century sailors, I wondered how that cosmopolitanism fared. Um, once it was confronted with what the literature tells us this is a sort of key moment in the emergence of modern nationalism, the sort of great cycle of French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So the initial idea when when this project started a long, long time ago was to see how that maritime cosmopolitanism fractures and how, um, how sailors, I assumed, would adopt um, nationalist solidarities um, or or at least prioritize those over their sort of class-based cosmopolitan um, solidarities. Um, I thought from the beginning, if, if I want to uh, try to understand how this cosmopolitan multinational world shatters into national units, I couldn't just study it from the perspective of one nation or imperial space, um, because that seemed to uh, predetermine the outcome. Um, I would start with uh, the fractured or the sort of the, the, the piece that had broken out of the hole. So given my particular um, um, own biographical background, I had a few languages that kind of had assembled over the years. Um, I grew up speaking Swedish and German um, as a child, uh, Swedish with my family, German outside of the home. I lived briefly in the Netherlands, so I, I knew how to speak and read Dutch. Um, I'd had French in school. Obviously, I spoke English. Um, as a native Swedish speaker, I can read Danish and Norwegian fairly easily. So I try to assemble as many of these languages possible to to try and recreate um, um, this multinational space for the Atlantic. But of course, um, whenever you go beyond one one just one national unit, uh, you- you get problems because you can't do everything and you somehow have to justify your selection. And then I do feel uh, um, um, that not having included, for instance, Spain and the Spanish Navy, the Russian Navy, the Ottoman Navy um, <laughs> is a problem, but there's only so much you can do obviously. So So in the end, I what I do in in the book, I focus on the um, the British Navy, the French Navy, and the Dutch Navy primarily. And also look a little bit in the, at the United States and, and at Sweden in during the 1790s. I sort of start with that as my um, kind of sample, and then see what happens in in those navies. Um, so, oh, and why mutinies? That actually was sort of um, initially just a practical matter. I thought, well, um, um, as a sort of there's a tradition of basically looking at uh, uh, court records to to get the bottom-up perspective of ordinary people. So I figured. Um, that would be a place where I could find um, um, the voices of ordinary sailors um, who get in trouble and who have to explain themselves. Um, once I started looking at it, I just found so many mutinies that uh, <laughs> uh, the product kind of shifted to, to to studying mutinies themselves rather than this initial question. So so, yeah, so that's kind of how I stumbled into this. It's a, 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 yeah, that's one of the things that the
0: fascinating news I was reading about was the sheer number of them because... You know, so so many of the uh, the histories, and and I'm not a specialist, so I've not read too deeply into the area. But you, you, I mean, there are certain famous episodes, such as uh, the Spithead Mutiny in 1797. But the the sheer number that you identify. Really illustrate how it's this it's this perennial issue that that's of great concern. That we're not talking about the Horatio Hornblower, you know, you know, happy and diligent crew here. That there are a lot of crews in 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 this during this period the uh, of, of the 1790s where there's a lot of of turmoil uh, reflecting both. The uh, ship dynamics, the, the, the hierarchy, the tensions there, but also what's going on in the broader world with revolutionary ideals, the notion of, of citizenship of man, and this idea that you describe of, of these sailors who have a very, you know, who had this, this very radical concept that maybe ships should be governed differently, that maybe we should have a, a different way of making decisions in, in, in how we operate, given that we're in this new world, this new era of, 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 of the empowerment of man.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, I was, uh, I was really blown away just by the sheer number of uh, of mutinies. and as you say, like I, I knew, of course, of a few. I'd heard of Spittet and the Knorr. Um There's, of course, the the, the bounty, which is, is just preceding this uh, this period. Um, but but I, I had no idea it would be that many. And uh, but of course, once you start thinking about it, and then once you start looking at them, it it kind of becomes obvious why there would be. Again, we have or before this book, uh, I build on a lot of uh, writing um, that shows that sailors were, were central political agents um, throughout uh, Atlantic history, but especially during the age of revolution. Uh, so in that sense, it shouldn't be surprising. Um, then, of course, with these particular naval sailors, they also, they, they are sent into this very, very long war um, um, in, in beginning in the 1790s. Um, that comes at the tail end of about 40 years of an intense build-up um, and an intense naval arms race where um, empires are under intense pressure to cut costs and then to increase efficiencies, which, um, uh, of course, uh, I mean a change in, in working relations and put pressure on, on conditions on board ships. So uh, on top of that, we have a, have a, a reason for uh, for discontent aboard ship. And then comes this just extraordinary explosion of, of political radicalism in, in every country, literally every country around the Atlantic Rim. So, It would, um, should not surprise us that sailors join wholeheartedly uh, in this project. Um, and of course, what, what to me became especially interesting as, as I started looking at it, it was also sort of to realize, and I'd never thought about this before, um, that, that sailors literally were the people and particularly uh, naval sailors who held these um, seaborne empires together. Um, the there's a lot of space between Britain and Jamaica, a lot of space between France and saint Domingue, and that space is bridged by sailors. Um, it's especially sailors on board warships that hold these empires together, and that, of course, uh, lent particular um, significance to these radical movements on board ship because they literally threatened um, the, the the networks that held together. Um, these imperial entities, and the imperial economies that propped up those empires. Um, So, so yeah, on the one hand, I was completely surprised, but then also once I started to think about it, um, I was questioning why why I was so surprised, really.
0: Um, What I found especially interesting was you're describing this common dynamic that's taking place in the 1790s, but it's... But it's not coming from a common context that what one of the first things you do in your book is you describe how these navies are put together. And while there are certain broad similarities, such as, uh, you know, they, there's a preference for you know, having people in these navies who have a sailing background, the recruitment practices, the retention practices are often very different. I was wondering if you could perhaps give us a, a, a brief overview of, of, of the composition of these different navies, how they recruit their sailors, and, and how that uh, helped to set the stage for some of the
1: discontent that you describe in the book. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I think... Um... There are very significant differences which then do come out as as the uh, sort of tensions begin to rise. But one thing first to note, which I think is, 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 uh, is important to realize, that by the late 18th century, almost the entire Western European coastline um, or the people living along the entire European coastline were under some form of obligation to serve the state in wartime. This was unique, that type of... Uh, um, geographical uh, requirement on people to, to offer up their labor to the state. Um, armies recruited themselves uh, quite differently in different ways across the continent. Um, the one exception is the Dutch Republic and I can talk about that in a second. So everywhere coming out of the Middle Ages into the modern uh, period um, forms of coercive recruitment developed all along the coastline. Now the most famous one of course is the British which is impressment which in some way even though there were institutional changes along the way that made the system more effective um, but it essentially remained unchanged from the medieval period when it first developed and this simply uh, was a system of just literally grabbing people off ships or uh, or targeting places on shore where likely sailors would uh, um, gather and just grabbing them and forcing them on board ships so it was a form of large scale state sanctioned kidnapping of maritime labor essentially uh, France uh, initially operated uh, um, a form of impressment into the late 17th century, um, but then instituted uh, a number of reforms and, uh, and, and developed a highly sophisticated conscription system um, uh, under which every man of uh, working age living along the coast and certain navigable rivers had to register their name with a, um, a, a, a recruitment agent. And then in return for getting certain benefits like uh, um, uh, invalid insurance or, uh, uh, or payment for widows and things like that, um, and also exemption from certain taxes and other duties, they would be expected to serve every few years during peacetime and when called up uh, uh, during wartime. So this was kind of a, um, and this was a, a, for the time late 17th and 18th century, it was a highly efficient bureaucratic system. But of course, the bureaucratic networks were not as efficient then as they would eventually become in the 19th and 20th century. Um, so the French had a much harder time recruiting sailors than the British who just used brute force. Um, however, uh, for most of the 18th century, the the French and then other, the Spanish and the Scandinavian navies had modified version of this sort of French conscription system. Um discontent was lower in the French Navy than in the British Navy. And I think in, in part the reason was that, uh, um, that the recruitment was more, um, uh, mutually beneficial, even if people still resented it, at least they got some benefits out of it. Whereas in the British it was literally just being forced to serve for low wages uh, on board warships. Now the, the Dutch were interesting because they, they unique among all the major navies, uh, Uh, used no directly coercive recruitment. They instead outsourced it to a system of uh, private uh, labor brokers and and what's often referred to as crimps. And what they did was that they would uh, basically, um, sort of the the, the bottom layer of this Dutch system was uh, a network of tavern keepers in, in Dutch port cities who would invite in people who looked like sailors. They would offer them room and board and entertainment on credit. Um, and once they'd run up a debt, uh, they would then facilitate uh, the entrance of these sailors into um, either a warship or a Dutch East India ship, uh, and would then be paid the advance that the sailor would normally get. They would be paid that uh, by the Navy to to, to make up the, the debt the sailor had accumulated. Um, also, in terms of uh, the, the Dutch uh, being unusual was that historically, the Dutch... Um, they reserved the worst jobs in the Republic, and this definitely included service uh, in the Navy to uh, foreign migrants. So in the Dutch Navy in the late 18th century, anywhere between 70-90% and of a given crew was not born in uh, the Netherlands itself. Um, the Dutch drew primarily from, uh, from the sort of core areas of the Holy Roman Empire, a lot of Germans, uh, Bohemians, Hungarians, and, and so forth. Uh in terms of uh, sort of uh, uh, composition in terms of uh, national background, uh the French were among the large navies, the most homogenous. Here somewhere between 20 and 30 percent were foreign-born, um so somewhere on 70 to 80 percent were uh native French born. And the British were somewhere in the middle. They were an average ship was perhaps uh 50% English born, twenty percent Irish. Um and the rest from all over the world. So they were, um, in various degrees, they were uh, highly cosmopolitan, the sort of Dutch at the far end, the the, the French at the, the less cosmopolitan end, and all uh, um, were recruited uh, more or less through direct coercion. So even the Dutch cases was ultimately um, a sort of exploitation of poverty and using the sort of structural force of poverty to push people into... Uh, a highly disagreeable um, a work situation
0: it's an interesting uh, series of systems that you describe that that uh i think i find fascinating about the dutch is how it's it's very capitalistic you don't you don't have that Monarchy, traditional feudal, you know, uh, post-feudal society that you're talking about, where there's the hierarchy and you respect the order. It's much more oriented towards. Well, we don't quite have that. We have this business system, but you nevertheless have this this notion of people that are in, uh, you know, to a degree, it's it's forced servitude. It's not quite slavery, but it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 you know, it's in some ways it's a little indistinguishable. And, And and yet then you have in the 1790s this explosion of of enthusiasm about uh, about equality and and, and fraternity and, and and this and and the, the creates this, this really fascinating social dynamic that you describe in your book so how does these how do the ships start to reflect what's going on with the French Revolution, what's going on with uh, a lot of the uh, rhetoric that's coming out of the Enlightenment, and, 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 and what is it that's leading them to take this extremely drastic step
1: towards mutiny, knowing what mutiny entails, potentially? Um, I, I think uh, I mentioned this, That I think it's in the conclusion of the book. It was one of my favorite finds in, in the archive. And, you know, you have like uh, any sort of project, you have like a few which just sort of stick with you, and you were so happy when you found it. In this case, it was, a, um, it was a petition that French sailors wrote in, uh, in 93 or 94, I forget. Um, and then one of the slogans they put on this petition, the petition was basically for shore leave. They, they wanted to get off the boat and, uh, and, and, and be on shore and then be with their families and friends and, and so forth. Um, and on the, on the petition, they put the slogan, liberty or death, um, which, of course, was a very common revolutionary slogan of the era. But I suddenly realized that it also had a, this much deeper meaning um, for the sailors because liberty was what sailors traditionally re- uh, used when they t- uh, spoke about shore leave. So the, when they talked about that they want liberty, um, one meaning uh, was for them to get off the boat and be on shore. Um, the flip side to that, um, uh, of the or rather the sort of uh, the second part of that, that slogan, liberty or death, um, was also profound really meaningful for them because sailors suffered spectacularly high um, mortality rates from disease. Far more sailors died from disease than from combat or or any other kind of injury. Um, and the numbers are really staggering. Um, so for many sailors who were sent uh, uh, to do duty in the West Indies, for instance, um, the chances were very, very high that they would not return, that they simply would be killed by, by yellow fever or malaria. Um, so this demand, liberty or death, had a very literal meaning for them. It like liberty, get off the boat, or death, because otherwise there's a very high chance that they actually gonna die. Um, so this was to me sort of a, a key insight uh, when I realized this that that sailors had a sort of a, a material existence. As as I mean, this is not this is certainly true for for other population groups too. But I mean, my concern, of course, was the sailors. Um, that these types of sort of grand political slogans they're filled in with people's uh with meanings that are derived from people's material conditions and in the case of the sailors it was particularly stark um this was one instance also you look at uh, um simply the kind of political micro society that is created on board ship it's the purest form of tyranny imaginable um all power flows from the single figure of the captain and all power flows downward formally um, it, it's um, those who at the bottom are the receiving end of uh, of authority are com- formally completely disempowered. Of course, there's always resistance. There's ways of getting around and, and and so forth. And there's everyday negotiation happening. But formally, it's a pure tyranny. So again, when if, this sort of language I could, starts, so
0: if, if if I could interject for real sure. quickly, there, there's a point that you make in your book that, that 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 probably would help for some context. Is that we're not talking? Is that what you're describing here? is not necessarily the norm when you're talking about uh, the this the, 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 the uh, civilian merchant practice. There you describe a, a, a more of a tradition of, of cooperation. Uh, the crew is, is is part of the process. They they profit from it. And of course they're 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 far better remunerated for it. So what you're describing here is, is not just a, a sense of, of a hierarchy that, you know, where they just suddenly discovered that they were knowing that they that they that they could have been doing better. It's that they have this contrast that really helps to illustrate for them this idea that, wow, we really have it terrible. It's not just an abstract notion of maybe we should have liberty. There's this real world example of, well, in in, in the in the private, in Merchant Marine, which many of these sales come from, it operates very
1: differently and Arguably, more successfully too. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question of success is, is, is hard to sort of judge because I mean, the, the Royal Navy was extremely successful, <laughs> not, <laughs> not for the sailors in it, but but as a sort of a, an imperial institution that, that that did its job. But I think, but the, the point you make is, is 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 critical and extremely important. Um, there is a kind of uh, fake debate in uh, in uh, Atlantic maritime history um, whether. Conditions on board ship were really horrible and oppressive, or whether they were relatively egalitarian. Um, and the reason I call it a fake debate is that often people engage in this um, don't take into account that the maritime labor market had many different sectors. Um, it is certainly true that uh, there were sectors that were extremely exploitative and authoritarian, including the Navy um, and including deep sea shipping, that is, ships that across the Atlantic um, tended to be, uh, have very, very poor working conditions and then very, very exploited workers. Um, but those sailors were a minority of sailors working the Atlantic. The majority um, sailed out of relatively small ports on small ships with relatively flat hierarchies. Um, they lived um, in, in the same communities on board ship as they lived on shore. Um, so the crews the would be recruited locally, they would know each other. Um, the, the kind of ca- the the authority of the captain uh, on board ship would be checked by communal disapproval on shore if he um, uh, uh, would become too brutal or, or exceed what was accepted as his as sort of bounds of his authority and so forth. Um, now, those two sectors were kept relatively distinct until the middle of the 18th century, but because the size of navies mushroomed beginning in the 1740s, um, there was an intense hunt for more and more maritime labor and more and more people began to migrate from the, um, um, what sometimes what, what can, think, can be thought of as sort of a coastal or riverine shipping into deep sea shipping. So there were more and more people who were socialized into a world of relatively egalitarian hierarchies at sea into these harshly hierarchical and authoritarian um, uh, uh, situations, both in the, in, in, in the deep sea merchant shipping but especially in the Navy, which was really extreme when it came to um, to, uh, uh, to, to the hierarchies and, and the, the violence with which they were uh, enforced on board ship. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that um, it's a sort of combination of the experience uh, of those hierarchies and of the authoritarianism and how they become interpreted and then how the language of uh, radical republicanism that is spreading around the Revolutionary Atlantic, how sailors take that on to interpret their own conditions. And that is given additional um, uh, um, force by the influx of people who have experienced a different form of being on board ship, a much more egalitarian form. And it's kind of those two streams um, of political experience that come together um, and, and, and and lay the basis for this, this huge wave of, of ever more radical mutinies that we see unfolding during the 1790s. I was wondering if you could describe maybe one or two of these mutinies that you think are
0: uh, particularly uh, symbolic or representative of this dynamic that you're talking about. Can you give us a sense as to uh, what were some of the the immediate causes and how these mutinies unfolded? Were they simply slaughtering the officers and then uh, becoming pirates? Were they uh, uh, trying to appeal to a higher authority over the heads of the captains? Or were they uh, you know, basically uh, abandoning their, their allegiance and, and, and trying to you know, seek some freedom elsewhere?
1: So with that, so one of the things I, uh, I discovered is that um, there's a whole sort of typology of different types of mutiny. Um, but also that uh, initially each navy has sort of a different pattern of how people mutiny. Um, but those patterns and the sort of waves tend to flow together and harmonize towards the end of the 1790s when when, uh, when the sort of the type of mutiny you described here at the end is sort of much more violent, the sort of rising up, overthrowing the power of the officer, sometimes killing them and then just sort of disappearing over the horizon. That becomes very prominent at the end of uh, the decade uh, when um, when the sort of conflict between officers and crews has really become, become extremely bitter um, on both sides. But before that, it sort of, it starts uh, differently in each navy. So in the French navy there's a kind of combination on the one hand, once state um, authority collapses at the beginning of the revolution, there's a real sense of joy of, <laughs> of crews just testing the boundaries and just saying no for the sheer fun of it. But they know because like that, that these officers are by and large were aristocratic. They had no authority anymore. So there's this kind of um, there's a, it's sometimes quite just funny to sort of see how, how sailors, just because they can, say no now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really becomes kind of anarchic. But what's fascinating in the French case is that th- those types of anarchic mutinies, they tend to only happen when crews are in home water. So when they anchor off Brest or Toulon or Rochefort, they don't tend to happen in the colonies. And in the colonies, those same uh, sort of chaotic anarchic sailors they display a sort of profound sense of uh, political responsibility. You can sort of see in how they mutiny and to whom they appeal and how confused they are that they try to work out um, who has authority over them. They they have a strong sense that uh, they are now serving the French Republic at sea, um, and this includes the French Republic's colonies overseas, um, but they're not quite sure who has the right to make decisions and who has the right to, to give them orders. Uh, pretty quickly, it appears that uh, um, it's no longer the established uh, military hierarchy um, because that was established under the old regime. So that becomes, um, uh, they, they, they disregard that quite soon. Instinctively, the sailors tend to give priority to local authorities on shore. So the municipalities in the particular port city they find themselves in and that works well when they're in France, um, but in the colonies it becomes difficult because there are all the issues um, um, or local politics are intersected with the politics of slavery and the politics of race, um, and the sailors by and large uh, instinctively side with people who are like themselves, that is poor white people in, uh, in the poor towns. Um, but they rub against the races of those people in the colonies. Um, so they're torn back and forth and they don't know who who who's sort of lead to follow. And that in the French Navy has the effect that ultimately they fall back upon themselves, um, that they sort of resurrect the age-old traditions that when in crisis, ultimately those who decide over ship are the ship's crew. Um, and so and, and they begin over time to sort of uh, articulate um, a political theory to justify that um, when there's a crisis situation, it's the crew that decides collectively. Um, so that's kind of the, the French uh, predominant form of mutiny. The Dutch, in part because they, uh, uh, they're they so multinational, their mutinies tend to just be chaotic. They erupt and they want to run away. Um, so there's relatively little... Um, Sort of sophisticated political content uh, among Dutch mutineers. The British case, um, here mutinies develop essentially as as strikes, and then it's it's fascinating over the first few years of um, of, of of the war to sort of see how the form of mutiny develops uh, among British sailors. That what they do from the beginning, or uh, is that they go on strike, and what that means is that they barricade themselves below deck. They just say, we're not going to work, and we're not going to come up on deck until um, our uh, our, uh, our demands are met. Uh, the officers of course strike back, um, ultimately with violence, and then very quickly what uh, one historian, Jonathan Neal, um, uh, has described as an armed strike develops. So the typical mutiny then in the British Navy uh, uh, gets, gets a sort of particular type of formula, which is that in the middle of the night, usually at the uh, uh, change of watch when people are moving around, but it's dark, a number of mutineers create complete chaos below deck. They, they scream, they make noise, they throw things, they push people around. Um, and as they've created that chaos, they basically lock down the lower deck. They, they they shut all the access points. They pull in some of the great guns and point them towards the quarter deck where the officers are. And then they barricade themselves below deck with control of all the ships uh, weaponry and then they make their demands um, so it's sort of at that point it's simply that now it, it, it's, it's simply a negotiation between who has more power um, and so in that sense uh, uh, the, the British uh, in, in the British Navy mutinies are really an expression of, of class warfare in an extremely literal sense um, so that's kind of the, the sort of the, the patterns that develop in the different navies and then as I said um uh, as the sort of two sides clash, increasingly a new form emerges, which is this sort of violent takeover mutiny where um, sailors just – they don't even make demands anymore. They just try to mess up, kill their officers, and run away. Um, and, and, um, and, and there's a part of that dynamic that I thought is
0: especially interesting and is – especially considering what happens by the end of the decade, which is how many of these crews, upon mutinying and killing their officers, then effectively uh, defect to France – maybe not to, to become part of the French Navy, but to, in effect, seek the protection of the French Republic, which they see as far more sympathetic to their vision, their ideals, and, and, and of course, you know, uh, more capable of providing them protection than if they were to simply be on their own.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's a little hard to uh, to, uh, to understand uh, the motivation for defection. Um in some cases, there are indications that it is sort of politically motivated, and as you say, that they, they run to France because they see France as, um, um, as an alternative or, or, or is having an alternative form of government that is more closely aligned to what they want. The irony, of course, is that um, after the fall of the, the radical Jacobin Republic, French sailors themselves completely turn on the state and completely <laughs> refuse to, to to collaborate with it, even as mutineers from other navies come to France to to ask to be allowed to fight for the French Republic. Um, I think the majority probably... Um, uh, so, in, so in the British case, there is this, this uh, huge eruption of, of mutinies that's pitted in the north, which is a kind of... Uh, a breaking point where British sailors go all out they establish what then becomes known as the floating Republic it's a sort of two-month long basically general strike in the in the home command of the British Navy and they develop extremely sophisticated forms of uh, of political self-organization uh, while they're at it and this is crushed extremely violently um, and after that we can see how People just sort of flood out or flood away from Britain. They they go to France, uh, they go to the United States, they go to the Dutch Republic. And it's a sort of mishmash. In some cases, it's clear people just want to get away. Um, in other cases, they go to France because they think uh, this at least is closer to the political project they have in mind. And in some cases, uh, where they go to the, the, the Dutch Republic one gets a sense that they go there because now they have an opportunity to fight against Britain. It's less that they want to uh, sort of embrace Dutch republicanism. It's just that they have the opportunity to sort of try to strike back at Britain. So so it's a mix of, 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 of motivations, but what is clear is that there's a sort of sharp decline, and this is coming back to sort of my initial interest in this project where I thought, thought that I would see an increasing um, uh, identification with the nation the opposite is actually true that by the late 1790s, as these wars drag on, that people become more and more disillusioned with all nations. And they, they, the general trend seems to be that they run to a place where they think they, they can have it slightly better, but not for really any positive identification with any nation or any political project, though, as I said, with France, it's, it's, there's this, there, some people see this as, as, as promising politically, but the majority just want to get away.
0: And that gets to uh, the dynamic you describe in your penultimate chapter, which is yeah. how the French, uh, after uh, the mutinies at Spithead and the Nore, try to, in effect, weaponize mutinies as a way of immobilizing the British Navy when they're thinking of conducting an invasion of of, of uh, Ireland. This, this is, of course, the uh, Lazar-Hoche and, and 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 this project that ultimately is uh, is is. Uh, you know, canceled in favor of of uh, Napoleon's invasion of, of Egypt, but you have this period in which you, you're describing how the French are are incur- are, are, are fostering this sense of of, of you know, rising up of embracing this new ideal because they think that it will be very beneficial and, 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 and to make clear, this is after the Jacobin period. we're talking about the directory here, but it, which mm-hmm. you know, argues more <laughs> a much more cynical government, but they nonetheless appreciate that this is something that could really work for them and, and, mm-hmm. and possibly even bring them victory in, 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 in this war against the British.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the uh, the at this point, of course, uh, the, the French Republic has become uh, imperialist, and then there's relatively little left over of sort of bringing liberation to peoples beyond France. Um, but nonetheless, they, they they're still very much in favor of revolutions <laughs> in other countries um, among their enemies. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's also the, there's the the the, yeah, the so-called Black Legion, where uh, there's sort of one of the projects I want to do look more closely, where the French basically, they just gather up a whole bunch of troublemakers, uh, deserters, criminals, royalist renegades, they load them onto ships, take them to Wales and just dump them there, <laughs> go forth and then and, and spread mayhem. And so, so they're clearly that the French are trying to do this. Um, I think that they're a little skeptical about um, whether it will succeed in, in, in the Royal Navy, and it, it's... Um, it's really the Irish sort of emissaries of the United Irish who, who keep trying to convince the French that, uh, that their people will rise up and, and the French would like to see it, but they're also a little skeptical that it actually will happen. So which is then why, as you say, um, they, uh, um, they withdraw uh, their resources from the Atlantic coast and from the plans to sort of get to Britain through Ireland and instead favor the, uh, the project of invading Egypt instead um, which of course is a miscalculation because uh, right as they set sail for Egypt, uh, the United Irish Rising erupts in Ireland, and, and they have to scramble to get their resources there. And um, the United Irish Rising was preceded by um, Irish radicals who who they what they saw while the, the the Great Fleet mutinies that spitted in the north were a failure from the perspective of the sailors that they they got relatively few cons sessions and then they they were cracked down upon very very hard in its aftermath Irish radicals looked at it and saw potential um, they realized that uh, um, the sort of Britain's famous wooden walls are actually quite fragile and they can be made to collapse so for about a year after the collapse of the fleet mutinies the Irish are extremely active in uh, in basically establishing uh, cells on board um, the the, the the, the Western Squadron, which is uh, is a squadron that basically patrols the seas between France and Ireland um, and then they, they they swear people in and on several of the large ships they have uh, um, sworn insurgents uh, that number up to 50, 60, 80 people on, on, on multiple ships that basically stand ready to to rise up, take over the, the Western Squadron and turn it into an incipient United Irish uh, Republic Republican Navy. Um ultimately it fails because uh um obviously the United Irish Rising itself fails. There, there's no French support that comes, but it's nonetheless it's it's a it's a it's a fascinating underground network at the heart of the British Imperial establishment that right under their noses there's this really extensive um uh, Irish conspiracy, um and very, very active um um underground uh, uh, radical underground activity on board the ships of the uh, British Navy. And what to me was especially fascinating here was that these ships are extremely crowded. Uh, one of these large warships has six, 700 men all pushed together. So it's extremely hard to, over months and months and months, to have a conspiracy to rise in violent mutiny when the day comes without most people on board ship knowing. Um, and that includes not just the Irish, but also all the ethnically English and, and Scottish sailors on board those ships, who all kept their mouths shut. Um, the The conspiracies only emerge, or, or, or officers only told about the Irish conspiracies, once the United Irish Rising itself has failed, and it's clear that the project is not going to go anywhere. That's when suddenly people come forward and start snitching on their shipmates. Um, so this, uh, and then there, there is a sort of um, um, in, in, in British geography and in the last few decades, uh, there has been a, an, an emphasis on kind of popular patriotism and popular loyalism during the French uh, wars. And then the evidence from the sailors, to me, points in a very different direction, that, that even ethnically English sailors, they were best um, disinterested <laughs> in the issue <laughs> and whether it would be a radical Irish rising or not. Um, they certainly weren't uh, politically opposed to it, by and large. Um, yeah it, but yeah that, that part is my, my favorite chapter the, the, the Irish conspiracy is just so fascinating to me it, it is and and, and, and you, because you see so much at play there that you're talking
0: about because you, you talk about the maritime Republic and, and it really is this interesting concept that that points to how the sailors have that commonality across race across uh, uh, across ethnicity and yet by the end of the decade nationalism becomes an m- increasingly more potent force among these crew members. So how, is this a a natural occurrence or do the navies realize that nationalism is a potent way of pushing back against a lot of this uh, transnational dynamic and and sometimes people abandoning their allegiances in in, in favor of this this broader ideal?
1: I mean, I think uh, what you see is, it's a sort of, um, uh, it's a combination of, uh, after almost a decade of struggle um, that has led to relatively little Except for dozens and dozens of uh, mutineers hanging from yardarms, that there is a bitterness and disillusionment among sailors. Um, that the sort of the insurrectionary wave has uh, has died. Um, that combined with extremely violent repression, and and I mean I, I recounted in the book some some waves of punitive violence that, that are just staggering, like just horrifying. Um, and that type of repression, combined with a explicitly ethno-nationalist appeal, um, so we see this, uh, for instance, very strongly um, uh, when when these Irish conspiracies are uh, um, are uncovered. The uh, the navy establishment uh, makes a kind of ethnically based appeal to the English sailors, and basically says. Uh, You can throw in your lot with the Irish and suffer the consequences, and we're going to demonstrate the consequences now when we're flogging someone with five, six hundred lashes in front of your eyes. Or you can remember your ethnic allegiance, and then you can sort of subordinate yourself to the proper hierarchies, and you will be spared as long as you prove your allegiance by continuously surveying the ethnic others that serve among you. So there is this sort of appeal and this invitation for ethno-nationalist bonding combined constantly with the demonstration of what will happen to you if you don't accept the invitation. And that, I think, um, in the context of uh, of a failed struggle, of an almost decade-long failed struggle for improvement is is a very, very potent appeal. Um, But I think I would distinguish that quite strongly from a kind of positive identification um, with the nation um, and and, then with the crown in this case.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, well, right now <laughs> I'm working on childcare most. <laughs> but, uh, but but in terms of, of 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 sort of broader projects, so one of the um, one reason why this book took really long uh, to write was that after I'd found all of these mutinies, and then I'd found that they had something in common that there was really some kind of uh, maritime space. Um, that went beyond individual nations and that this uh, maritime space had a genuine revolution, a kind of genuine Atlantic revolution in the so-called age of Atlantic revolutions. It took me a really long time to conceptually understand what that movement was. Um, uh, it wasn't anti-colonial in the way, say, the Haitian revolution was a revolution or even the failed uh, bid for Irish independence or, of course, like the French or American revolution. It was something different. It took me a long time to to understand that and It was after I stumbled into um, um, an article that the brilliant French historian uh, with French Revolution, Pierre Serna, wrote called Every Revolution is a War for Independence, in which he kind of reinterprets the entire age of revolution as basically consisting of wars for independence on different levels. That that what people really are striving for is independent uh, or right to independent politics. And once I read that, I suddenly realized that is actually what I'm seeing here. This is a, a, an, an attempt at mar- a maritime war for independence. Um, it's an attempt to undo, uh, undo the control of navies over maritime space. Um, and then to reassert older traditions of how people can org- organize themselves on board ship and along the coasts. Um, so this is kind of, that, that was sort of an idea that kind of allowed me to, to, to bring this ship into harbor. But I never really articulated that or explored this fully. In the book itself. So the next project I'm doing is kind of, now that I've studied the the sort of attempted independence war against this form of maritime empire, so the next project is to go back and to look at how um, this seaborne empire was established and to sort of rethink the process of European overseas expansion as an act of colonizing maritime space. Um, So the idea is that before overseas colonies could be established, First, the seas themselves had to be colonized, beginning on the coasts in Europe themselves and maritime space, that is a shipboard space that sort of crisscrossed uh, uh, the ocean. So so I'm exploring this from uh, primarily the British perspective, um, looking at things like the uh, establishment of war ports like Portsmouth. Um, um, the I'm going to go further into... Uh, uh, um, the development of recruitment systems, how sort of the state lays claim to to the labor of people living along the coasts. Uh, we're going to look at things like suppression of piracy and smuggling as kind of independent uh, forms of maritime trade, and how they are sort of cracked down upon. And so, so yeah, so that's that's the the next project.
0: Um, it it, it sounds like a fascinating project. I I, I really hope that uh, when you complete it and publish it, that we can have you back on the New Books Network to discuss it.
1: I, I will do, hopefully, podcasts still exist if, if uh, the product takes as long as this one. But uh, if, if, if the internet is still a thing, I'll, I'll happily come back. Well, hopefully it won't take that long. <laughs> I, I agree. I hope not.
0: Uh, Nichols, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you very much for this opportunity. Take care.